Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Before we do that, uh, let us pray together. Let's pray together. Lord of truth, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to you as you open your word to us now. Through our contemplation of your word, Lord, we pray that you would declare your truth to us, that you would let us be transformed by your spirit and your word as we consume this spiritual food that you have provide, uh, prepared for us. I pray, God, that you would let us be transformed by this sermon. May we increase in humility and grace, understanding and knowledge of the triune God. We can say and do nothing without your spirit animating us, guiding us, sanctifying us, and illuminating us. Let this word feed our souls, and may this word preached animate and enliven the saints who hear it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen. 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 Cretans. Woo, Cretans. They are a hot lot, these Cretans. Now, why are there Cretan Christians? I think... Let's answer this question first. There is Titus on the island of Crete, and there are Christians there who are teaching, uh, being taught false things. There's false teachers among them. But how did they get there? Well, on the day of Pentecost, there actually were Cretans uh, there who heard the message of Peter. They were there. They were baptized. They became believers. So what you can see um, is that as Paul's ministry expands out from Jerusalem, now they're out on the island of Crete, and there are some people there already who believe um, but it didn't take long for false gospels and uh, to, to begin being preached among them. So they are Christians. They are there. They're not or- well organized. They're not well established. And there are wolves in their midst. Now, Paul had been on Crete before. In, in, in Acts, it, at the end of Acts, he is um, kind of bobbing in and out of it. He, uh, as they're sailing around, they're trying to get through the Mediterranean. They get near it. It's not really clear if he stopped there. Given the fact that he has sent Titus there and that they are doing active work there, uh, I think if you read between the lines and what happens in Acts, I think he must have made some landfall. He must have talked to some people at some point. Now, the first four verses of Titus are actually one Greek sentence. I can just say right now, after three years in uh, Samuel, the books of Samuel, working in the Old Testament, um, now we're here in the New Testament, I'm going to testify to you that it is a different material. <laughs> it is very different uh, wood working that we're doing on this wood. It's very different. I, I was struck by it several times this week that this is, it, it's, it's, the Old Testament is beautiful and glorious, but the New Testament is so different. It, 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 it is shocking almost once you actually start to try to untangle everything that's there. This is one Greek sentence that we broken into four verses, right? And even in those four verses, you have, you know, uh, a and B and C of some of these verses, it is, it is thick, it is rich, it is, an, it is a knot of theological glory here. And, and this is Paul's way. Paul does not make it easy on us. Um, and when you're reading uh, this, it, oughtn't, it ought not be easy. It ought to be difficult because it is the glory of kings to figure out the puzzle, to figure out the proverb, to figure out what is there. Now, Titus is not mentioned until verse 4. And this long Greek sentence is one of the longest and most intricate introductions that uh, Paul gives in any of his epistles. So the question I have is if he knows Titus so well, why doesn't he mention him right away? And why does he go so far out of his way to remind Titus, who already knows him, who he is and what he's all about? Well, the reason is because the, the letter that Titus has in his hands like other letters, is meant to be read to, the, to Christians. He goes around and he has it read out loud. And so it's not just for him. It's very important that, that we understand this. Everybody who is in, in the churches in Crete, those Cretan churches, are, be, are hearing this letter. And so the introduction is not for Titus's benefit, necessarily. It's for the benefit of everyone else. Okay? So that, that's kind of the, the concept that we have here. As I said last week, there's a lot that... Um, uh, Paul is sort of hiding in the text, right? He's speaking in very short, punchy, logical statements that Titus has to fill in. So Titus, as a secondary recipient of this introduction, is hearing what Paul is saying, and it's reminding Titus of all kinds of things about the ministry that, um, and, and what he's going to be doing in Crete. It's a reminder, 
Right? Paul says, this is who I am and this is what I'm all about. And as Titus is here, he goes, okay, this is, this is who I am and this is what I'm all about. At the same time, all the other Christians who are hearing it are saying, okay, this is who this guy is and this is what he's about. <laughs> right? and, and this is what he's going to be doing in our midst. Paul first establishes his own credentials and in verse 4 calls Titus his true child and a common faith. The same faith mentioned in verse 1, Titus must act like his father Paul. For they share the unified faith of God's household. They are fruit of the very ministry that they are engaged in. Okay, this is also something that is important to remember. Paul is the fruit of the very ministry that he is engaged in. Titus is the fruit of that same ministry. Okay? The ministers are often the message, as I have said many, many times before. Right? You, you, the, we are the illustration of the gospel that we carry around with us when we are preaching the good news to our family and our friends and our coworkers. The messengers are, in a sense, the message. Now, the introduction introduces key terms, concepts, ideas that are going to be taken up again and again and again throughout the letter. It's sort of like a brief overview of what's going to be covered. In order of appearance here in the introduction, we have faith, godliness, hope, eternal life, epiphany, that concept of divine manifestation. And all of these are going to be taken up again and again and again. As was read for us this morning, Paul does not mind repeating himself. It's, it's easy <laughs> because when you're, you're given the gospel, giving the gospel is easy. You just keep repeating it in different words. And so he's going to repeat himself a bunch of times throughout the letter. And, and part of what he's doing there is every time he repeats something he's already said in the introduction, it should make everyone think of the introduction and what they learned from it. Now, the last thing in this opening sentence that is repeated a great deal in this letter that is the uh, key to understanding what it's all about is the word salvation. Salvation. While Titus is in Crete, he is fighting the false teachers with the gospel. He is building the church with the gospel. He, uh, the fruit of, he is the fruit of the gospel. His work is the gospel. He's using the gospel to build a people of the gospel. Okay? This is important for us to understand. We've, we've, we've learned a great deal about David. We've great, learned a great deal about how to apply the things that we learned in, in those stories to our, real, our lives. And now we're going to go back, and what we're going to review is that what it's all about, what those stories were all about, what your story is all about, what the mission is all about, is the gospel. We are gospel people. We are the fruit of the gospel, and the gospel is the work, and the gospel is the, is the means of doing the work. Okay, these linguistic repetitions are scattered throughout the letter, and all of them point Titus and his hearers back to the opening, and that is a message that they need to hear again and again and again. What it's all about is the gospel. God's salvation results in good creeds and good deeds. Okay? In the introduction, they see the apostles' ministry, they see his message are the result of God's salvation, and that salvation and the life that naturally results from God's salvation are inseparable from one another. You are saved, you, you are standing there, you, passively receiving it, but that you do not remain, once you receive it, passive. You get to work, right? You believe this, if you believe it, then your deeds will align with the things that you believe. And, and that is what Paul is all about. He says, here's what I believe, and here's what I do. Here is Titus, he's going to tell, tell you what to believe, watch what he does. And this is always how it works. Fathers, you're teaching your children what they ought to believe, and then you are showing them the fruit of that, of that belief. Mothers, you are teaching and instructing your children in the creeds of Christendom, and then you are showing them the deeds of Christendom. And that is Paul's point, okay? And that's what he's going to refer back to again and again and again by this repetition. Now, first, we're going to just take ver uh, these verses uh, one at a time here, and we're going to unpack them and look at the life of Paul and and. and how the gospel, what the gospel has done in his life. Now, first, Paul is a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm going to just stop right there and say it's not servant, okay? It's slave. He is a slave. The Greek word unequivocally is slave. Now, the reason that it says servant, the reason we say servant, is because we do not understand the ethics of slavery in the Bible. Okay? We, we just don't understand it. 
Anywhere that the word slave is used is a positive way. We change it to servant because we're uncomfortable with the fact that slavery exists at all. Now, I'm not going, one should never, I, I've been having this conversation because I say things like this and my kids are like, yeah, we're pro-slavery. <laughs> I'm like, that is the wrong lesson. Okay, we are not pro-slavery. What we are is we, we go to the Bible and we understand that slavery existed and it's not necessarily always in every case, wicked, because obviously Paul and God are telling people how you're supposed to treat slaves. So he wouldn't say, hey, you know, this is a wicked, evil thing, never do it, but if you do it, here's how you ought to treat them. That's not what God is doing. Okay, this word doulos, translated as servant or bondservant, is slave. Okay, and, and Paul is a slave. He's proclaiming himself to be a slave. Now, in the culture of the first century, the institution of slavery was based on a system of deeply rooted assumptions. The slave was the property of his master, and this is language that the apostles use all the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, like a slave. You were purchased. You are not your own. Slavery is used to describe the nature of the incarnation itself. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. Now, here's my question. Now, the institution of slavery should not exist. In fact, the Western world is the first um, culture in the history of mankind that has done away with slavery, right? If you cannot own slaves in England and Ireland and the United States and anywhere where the, where the gospel is gone, slavery dies. Amen. But it exists. And, and, and it helps us to understand the nature of our relationship to the God we serve. If Jesus is referred to as a slave, is it, how could it be beneath us to be referred to as a slave? Uh, and, I, and I think there's a great number of evangelicals in the modern world who've got to deal with this. You are not your own. You do not belong to yourselves. You are his property. Now, a slave's existence was determined by servitude and submission to the authority of the master. Jesus said in John 6:38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So throughout the entire gospel stories, Jesus is not going around doing whatever he wants. That's not freedom. That's not liberty. He is doing only what, he, what, he, what the will of the Father dictates that he does. And it's not beneath him to talk this way about himself. But we think it in, 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 in indignity to consider ourselves the slave of anybody, right? We're, <laughs> we're Americans, we kneel to no one. We kneel to no one. And what that, the result of that is that we don't even kneel to God, right? We're owned by no one, we're owned by nothing, and we're not even owned by God. That's the fruit of it. But you have to understand, no, we are slaves. We are not our own. And everything that the Lord wills for us to do is the program. That's the program. What, what ought we to do? What God tells us to do. Now, a slave's existence was determined, I'm sorry, the slave's existence was one of complete dependence upon the master and owner for both subsistence and protection. Paul says in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Now, these elements of slavery play into the metaphorical use of the word doulos by the apostles to describe service to Yahweh. There's a great book by John MacArthur, it's called Slave, in which he takes all Paul's uses of the word and he, he describes the Christian life. And, I, and, and I'm telling you right now, I have no problem with having societies that exist for the, for the reason of getting rid of slavery. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the very concept of a slave is something we have forgotten because we're autonomous modern people who, don't, who aren't owned by anyone and owe no one anything. We are our own people. We are our own masters. And we could use a little bit of Paul's humility, right? We could use a little bit of Jesus' understanding of his position as a human being. You, you own nothing, right? You can provide nothing to yourself. It could go away in an instant, right? Your entire life, everything you own. And when, and when we open the Bible and we read there what God wants us to do, is that what you want to do? No. Is it what you're supposed to do? Yes. Why? Well, because I'm a beloved son. Yeah, okay, you're a beloved son. What else? Well, I'm God's friend. Okay, you're God's friend. Good, good. These are easy for us. We get this. Uh, why is it you're supposed to do 
what he says, because I am his slave. Okay, now, right, you take the friend, slave, son, brother, you take all these ideas together and you get a sense of what the Christian life is all about. Now, I'm going to get off that hobby horse for a second, get on a different one. Paul is using a term, uh, servant of the Lord, slave of the Lord, that was used of both Moses and Joshua. And this is the thing, this is where we start to see what he's doing for Titus. Titus hears what he says, and he uh, begins immediately to think things in his mind, making connections in his mind. Paul is using a term that was used for both Moses and Joshua. Deuteronomy 34.5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Joshua 24.29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Paul is the heir of both Moses and Joshua. That, that is an important distinction to make. He is the heir of both Moses and Joshua. And what was Moses' ministry and what was Joshua's ministry? Okay, that he's, he's framing the, his ministry in, in the context of their ministries. Now, Paul then refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle means sent one. Jesus sent the apostles. It says in Matthew 28, 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He sent them. He sent them on a mission. And that's what it means to be a sent one. An apostle is one who is sent on a mission. Paul received his commission later, but his apostolate is no less valid than the rest of the apostles. Paul derives his authority from the one who sent him, and he is referencing for all those who hear the letter the warning of Christ himself. Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if you're a sent one, Jesus was very clear. I was sent here by God, and if you reject me, you reject him. So then he sends his apostles, and he says, okay, if you reject them, you reject me. So there is something very interesting here going on. If you reject Paul, then you reject Christ. Now, Paul sent Titus, so here we go. If you reject Titus, you're rejecting Paul, therefore you're rejecting Christ. Now, in, in the, right, we are one apostolic church, as it says here in the creed every day. So if you, if you deny those who are sent by God into your life, you are not just, right, you're denying a long succession of people. And, and ultimately what you're doing is denying Christ himself. But to receive those God sends, to receive the message that they give, is to receive God, is to receive Christ. Now you put all these ideas of service to God together, and one application is that the descendants of the prophets are the apostles. To be an apostle of Christ is equal to being a servant of God. The source of Moses' ministry and the source of Paul's ministry are the same. Paul is showing that the apostles' understanding of the continuity of the prophets and apostles of the Old Testament and New Testament, this is what it is. And the reason is because the false teachers are teaching something else. They're misapplying and bringing forward things from the Old Testament that they ought not. And what Paul wants to do is establish the continuity of the Old and New Testament. And what he's saying is the apostles are the heirs of, of Moses. We are the heirs of the, of the prophets. We are the heirs of the kings. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the new Israel. And we are bearing the message of the true and living God. Now, there is Titus, and he's listening to this. And he goes, you know what? This sounds familiar. All of these things. He's doing all these little word plays here. This sounds like something. And then he gets out his scroll of Ephesians. If you turn with, with me there to Ephesians 2. Okay, all, this is what I was talking about last week. In, he, in these subtle word he, he, choices that he's making, he's packing a lot in. So if you turn to Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, this is what we read. This is the point that Paul is making to Titus and the other and the Cretan Christians. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, were once, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, you are no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now that's a lot, but this is my point last week. Paul is writing in a very pithy, quick way, and, and Titus is supposed to do the hard work of filling it in. So Paul is an apostle, Paul is a servant, Paul is a descendant of the, of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is a new household, and these false teachers who are teaching a different gospel, who are talking about a different way to get into the kingdom, are, are all of them lying. That is not the truth. The truth is that Jesus took down the wall, Jesus is preaching the good news, Jesus is the peace between the nations, Jesus is now making one household out of a bunch of people who some were far off and some were near, but now they all are one people. And the false teachers are not them. These, this circumcision party, it's, it, he's mentioned it, it was mentioned in Philippians, read for us, it was mentioned in Ephesians, Paul is going to mention it here in the book of Titus, in chapter 1, verse 10. They are the ones saying that there is a different gospel, that there is a different way into the kingdom, that there is a different people of God. And that is what Titus is fighting. Moses' heirs are the apostles. The God of the Old Testament is Jesus, the Christ. The old ways are gone, as Paul has made clear in the book of Hebrews at this point, <laughs> to also re show you what, what Titus would have remembered. I could just read the entire book of Hebrews to you. Because he'd be like, oh yes, we covered this. <laughs> the old way is gone, the new way is here, and the new way is Jesus. Titus is going to address those who are upsetting whole households, it says in verse 11 of chapter 1, Titus chapter 1. He's going to address those who are upsetting whole households. He's going to appoint house stewards in the household of God. Why? Because there is a new house. And that's what Titus is doing on the island of Crete. He is, built, he is continuing the construction of the house of God, which is both Jew and Gentile, and the way into it is Jesus. Now, I would say at this point, the recipients of this letter are paying attention. Right? He, just, he, he, he called himself a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now they're listening. Because they're Jews, right? Some of them are Jews, some of them are Greeks, but all of these ideas they're going to recognize immediately. Now, he goes on, okay, because his, Paul's service and apostolate are intended to do what? what? What is the purpose? It says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This house-building program is explored through the remainder of verse 1 in a long compound prepositional phrase, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The Greek preposition translated as for in the ESV, indicates purpose, which can be rendered in various ways. It means for the purpose of, to bring about, for the, to the furtherance of. Now, this purpose connects the word apostle and faith. Paul is an apostle for a reason. Right? He has a purpose, and that purpose is faith. That purpose is godliness. The term faith in this letter is used in different ways either to, re to refer to the act of believing or the content of what's believed. Okay? That faith can mean either the content of what's believed or the act of believing itself. Here, the second is in play. The faith is the content of what is be believed, the creed. So Paul is there. His mission is the creed. We've got to get the right creeds, and if we don't get the right creeds, we're going to build the wrong kind of house. Okay, so imagine, if you will, a house builder who sends his plans down to um, Dunlumber, and, and after a couple of days, he starts receiving all of, all of the materials he needs to build the house, and he, and he has the plans in front of him, and he starts to put the house together, but it, it's not working. Well, then you go down to Dunlumber, and you find out that you actually sent the wrong plans. They're sending material for a house that you're not actually building, and you're not getting the material you actually need to build the house. That's what Paul is doing with Titus. Titus is there to make sure that, that everybody is on the same page. There is one creed, that creed is Jesus, and that is the blueprint for building the house. 
Now, the designation God's elect, I'm not going to get into election. I follow my uh, Dutch brothers. Uh, I only talk about that if I really have to, and I don't have to, so I'm not going (laughs) to. For our purposes here today, (laughs) God's elect is an Old Testament concept um, that he's talking about the people of God. You refer to the God's people, you say saints, you say Christians. The way they did it in the Old Testament is you say God's elect, God's chosen people. Now, Paul implies that those who have come to faith through, through his apostolate are therefore God's people. They are chosen by him and continuous with the Old Testament community of faith. This is, again, pointing to what the false teachers are proclaiming. Right? You don't need circumcision. No, you're God's chosen people. He chose you. Right? It's not about what you did or didn't do. It's about his choice, and he chose you. Now, divine election constitutes a basic element in the doctrine of salvation. Although this element contains mysteries for human understanding, election is biblically emphasized here as a central part of God's dealing with his people. Okay? Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Titus would here recall that Paul specifically taught that God is the source, the initiator, the implementer, and the underwriter of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Jesus and his Father and their spirit worked to save us, just as it saved the Thessalonians, just as it saved the Cretans. We are here because God chose us. We are here because God saved us. We are here because God is animating us. We are here because God is sustaining us. He is everything. There is nothing apart from him. Anything that is not attached to him is death. Anything that not attached to him is ugly. Anything not attached to him is, is gross and will, be, and will be put away. But you are here not because you're fantastic not because you're a genius, not because you have some glorious insight into anything. You were here because the gospel went out and dragged you in here and sat you in those chairs. And even, even the assent to what you hear, the, even you're saying, yes, I believe that creed, is a gift that you were given. <laughs> the, the, the disciples said, Jesus, what, what is the work of God? And he said, that you believe. And this is what Titus needs to be reminded of, and this is what these, the Cretans need to be reminded of. Now, we find next the central thesis of our whole series on Paul's letter to Titus. This is the point of the whole thing. The word creed means belief or faith. Godliness is piety. The term for godliness denotes an everyday way of living that displays devotion to God. Paul is a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith and godliness of God's people. Paul's responsibility as apostle is to then ensure the vitality of the belief of the people of God. A vital faith adheres to the truth taught by Paul and exhibits the appropriate lifestyle response. He's not here just to to tell them what they ought to believe. He's here to to ensure what? Their faith and godliness. It's, it's not a head religion or a hand religion. It's a head and hand religion. It's a heart and head and hand religion. All of it goes together. Paul's ministry is to further the creeds and deeds of the Christians. The knowledge of the truth in all its theological and practical dimension is that which leads to godliness. Paul understands the truth to produce godliness, or in other, in other words, godliness is the yardstick of the truth. You can measure how much People understand the truth by measuring what they are doing. And this is what James said. You got faith? Fine. Fine. Now show me your works. Now, we're on some dangerous ground, but I think I've already established the fact that you were chosen (laughs) and that your works didn't get you here, but you were saved into this family, you were saved into this household because there are chores to be done. There are works to be done. There are deeds that need doing. 
Now, Pastor Wilson comments here, truth without godliness is just so many dry bones, whether they are arranged in a way that is anatomically correct or not. Too many are led to suppose that sound doctrine brings godliness with it as an automatic fringe benefit. But to paraphrase the Puritan William Gurnell, it is possible to have a sound head and a rotten heart. Given the description of the false teachers that we're going to cover in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, the fact that they are denounced for the rejection of the truth, for corrupt behavior as, and a false claim to know God, the sense of godliness, the balance of faith and conduct is the authentic measurement of truth. We're going to see these guys don't believe the truth, and you can see it in the way that they're living. And so Paul is sending, is sending this letter to Titus to make sure that he gets the creeds right in their minds so that their deeds are right. Conversion is the pathway to growing in knowledge, yet this knowledge must not be an end in itself, but rather should lead to godliness, that is, mature Christian character. Now, the New American Commentary summarizes this, the argument so far this way. The sequence of these three significant terms Paul used in this first verse, faith, knowledge, godliness, suggests a pattern of true Christian growth. Saving faith that opens one's eyes to the knowledge of the truth should result in a transformed life characterized by godliness. And all of this, this is all established on the basis of God's promises revealed in the preaching of the gospel. This transformed life is an eternal life. It shares in the qualities of the life of God. For he alone is eternal and undying. That's why he goes on. He says, in the hope of eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? Eternal life is not something separate from who God is. He is self-sustaining. He is the eternal one. He is undying. He is sinless. De death and decay cannot touch him. He is the source of eternal life. And so when he said, right, he's grounding this whole thing in the person of God himself. Not to be a heretic, in the persons of God himself. <laughs> Just a Check the box there. Godliness is a life that extends into eternity because this, its source is the triune God. This whole section establishes that those creeds and deeds that Paul is bringing about is from God and to God. The creeds and deeds have a Godward orientation. If John Piper were here, that is what he would say. He, he is all about the Godward orientation. It comes from God and it travels back to God. It's, it's from him and it's for him. It, it's from him and it's to him. It's a Godward life that we are supposed to be living. Now, this is, this is where things get interesting and a little tricky. Because Paul writes to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Godliness is a set of doctrinal statements about Jesus. Think about that. Paul says, listen, you know, godliness is a real mystery. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that godliness is a person, right? The law is not some impersonal list of rules. It's a person, and that person is Jesus. Now, what is eternal life? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is godliness? Jesus. What is eternal life? Knowing Jesus. Paul's ministry is the furtherance of the creeds and deeds of God's people. Paul was sent with the message of John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you, you might receive the creeds and you think, oh yeah, you know what, I assent to these, I believe this. And then you're like, oh, okay, so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go obey this Lord. And then so you go obey him and you're like, man, I really believe this stuff well and I really act the right way. But what Paul is reminding Titus here, because Titus has some serious work to do, is that they are there because they are chosen. And, and, the, and the thing that they are being conformed to is the person of Jesus. And the reason is be, and how it's done right, is through faith, a gift. How it's done is through works. And what are, the, what are those works supposed to look like? They're supposed to look like Jesus. They're supposed to be the things Jesus did, the way he did them, empowered by him. Jesus really is, in every way, the way back to the Father. He is the way and the truth and the life. 
Now, to understand the character of this hope for eternal life and Paul's ministry in service of this hope, Paul sets it within the framework of God's eternal promise. The credibility of this hope and the credibility of Paul's apostolate are established upon God. Several items combine together to make this point. The reference to eternal life becomes in the following clause, the thing that God promised. Promised theology is characteristic of the belief that God lives in a covenant relationship with his people, a relationship founded upon promises. In Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12 and promises in 2 Samuel 7, he has promised that he will not leave us in this broken and fallen state. He promised Adam and Eve. He promised Abraham. He promised David. He promised and promised and promised and promised and promised. And is he a liar or is he speaking the truth? The New Testament, the content of the promise is specifically Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. Now remember, the ministry in Corinth, the letters sent there were carried there by Titus. He knows this. He said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We say amen to God for Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises. And in this, God establishes, anoints, seals us in the undying life. So what is happening when you see that creed and you say, yes, I believe this. What's happening is that you're being sealed into this eternal life, the, the life of God himself, and, and that is the thing that you are receiving. There, there is something physically happening to you when you're assenting to these creeds. Just like when we eat the bread and drink the wine, there is something going on. We are not just here reciting the Nicene Creed because it's the thing that we're supposed to do after that one song. Right before, right before we do this part and that part of the service, let's just drop that thing in there because why not there? No, you are standing up and you are saying it. And while you're saying it, something is happening to you. Now, the phrase before the beginning of time takes the promise back before time began. This is in, in eternity past. This was decided. <laughs> there they are. On the back porch, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're having some iced tea, and they think, you know what? Justin Nielsen, let's do it. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a good guy because he's one of ours. We're just going to choose him. Ann Johnson, yeah, let's take her. What about this person? What about that person? And we're not there. We don't know why they made this decision. But they were there together before they made anything, before they made a bl bl blade of grass. And they were like, yeah, the Chacos, we'll take them. The, the Hewards, we'll have them too. And so you think you might be here because, oh, look at you. You're so wise with believing these things, or you're so good because you're doing all these things. And the whole thing was decided when there was nothing. In eternity past, they sat down and made the decision that you would be here. Now, Paul then gets out his big rhetorical shotgun and takes a shot at all of those Cretans sitting there. Because he says next, that the, these promises come from the God who cannot lie. Now, that is true, but why is he saying that? He's saying it for more reasons than it's just true. He's not just like, oh, yeah, by the way, he can't lie. He's making claims about God's veracity, but he also raises the specter of the ancient critique of the flawed Cretan religion and morality. The Cretans have a reputation, and ladies and gentlemen, it's not good. Okay, in this way, Paul introduces the nature of, Cre of the Cretan culture in the introduction, a conception of God that will sit uneasily and subversively amongst those Cretans. At the outset of the letter, the anticipation of his biting criticism from 112 is already being laid. He's laying ground because later on in verse 12, he's going to say Cretans are always liars. Paul echoes a lured cluster of traditions that lay at the heart of, the, of Crete's deplorable reputation. Historians agree that Cretans regarded lying as a culturally acceptable thing. Right? If you really want somebody to lie well, you get a Cretan. You're like, you know what, this lie, my mom's not going to believe this lie. Where's a Cretan? Give me a Cretan. They know how to lie. Because Cretans thought if you, if you were good at lying, you were a good person. In fact, there was, <laughs> there's a pejorative in Greek that 
that we find in, in the, amongst the historians, uh, the word, they would refer to someone as a Kretzo. Because of the island Crete, it comes from that, it says to play the Cretan or to lie. Like literally to say in Greek, to lie, you use the name of the island where the people come from because they're a bunch of liars. <laughs> now, as if, now, if I were to comment to you guys that a man has a real San Francisco vibe about him, wouldn't you all understand what I meant by that? <laughs> right? And so literally, why? Because certain places get these reputations. Right? I, and, I, <laughs> and it's funny because I go overseas now and, be, and there are people who are like, where are you from? And I say Seattle and go, ooh. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't live in the Chaz. No. <laughs> so Crete, Crete had this reputation. Right? You refer to a liar as a Cretan. Now, Paul's def, uh, reference to God who does not lie also lampoons the character of Zeus of Cretan mythology, who lied many, many times specifically to have sexual relations with women. He pretended at one point, there's a, a famous Cretan story where there's a beautiful woman on Crete, and he pretends to be her husband, and then he ends up sleeping with her. And so he's a liar, and this is why Cretans like it. The better you are at lying, the better life is going to be. Zeus was uh, considered the epitome of virtue in Cretan culture. And so here we have, in the introduction, Paul taking a shot at the entire society. Now, I think that that is important. We, we, are, we are fighting the gospel, and we're doing it by making fun of those things that we ought to make fun of. Right? When I said a real San Francisco vibe, we all laughed, because it's true. And, and we, we, right, there, <laughs> this is one of the things I've said before. There are blasphemy laws. There are always blasphemy laws. Now, that's not what the culture calls it, but there are always blasphemy laws. There are things you are not supposed to say. Now, I could run around and have a, a mental health crisis moment right down here on the Wendy's, and they will come, and they will take me to the hospital and give me some pills, and it'll be great. But if I go down there and I start saying certain things, the police department is right up the street, and you guys will see me get hauled off real fast. Now, why is that? Well, and especially the way things are going in Seattle, I could go downtown and start smashing some car windows and just be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go in this Walmart now and rob it. All these kinds of things are fine, but I could go down into the center, center of town and there are certain things that I could say in three minutes I'd get hauled off. Now, what Paul is doing is he is going right to the heart of the problem. The Cretans are liars. Their gods are liars. The false teachers are liars. There is one person who tells the truth. His name is God. His name is Jesus. I am here, sent from him. And that, and that is his agent on the ground is Titus. And what we are going to tell you is some truth. We're going to tell you some good news. Now, the promises of God, the God who cannot lie, are made visible through the preaching entrusted to Paul by the command of God. It's given to him. It's, he's entrusted with this mission. Paul uses the more common New Testament Greek word here for preaching, kirgma. In the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, uh, this, this kind of teaching is used frequently as a technical term for both the content and the method of conveying the content. Preaching is the means of, redemp of redemption, we can't forget. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so Titus is sitting there and goes, yeah, I'm entrusted with this mission too. I am sent here to preach. You know why? Because I'm here as a representative of the one who does not lie, because what this culture is full of is lies. And the truth is what? Jesus. The truth is the gospel. The truth delivers us. The truth is real liberty. It's real freedom. And it is delightful. And it is glorious to be the one to bear this good news to a new culture. Now, what began in verse 2 in the eternal life of God himself finishes with the gospel proclaimed by the command of God himself. So you read this whole thing. It starts with God and it ends with God. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I am entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So the eternal life is in God. The command comes from God. It begins with God. It ends with God. And all through the middle of it is what? God. 
This is a God-centered introduction. God is identified as Paul's master. He is the one who chose his people. He is the one who made them promises. He is the one who revealed the promises. And he is the one who is saving them. God the Savior. The source of Paul's ministry is God. His authority is derived from God. His message is God. The introduction concludes with verse 4, where Paul greets Titus, his true child, in a common faith. He says, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. So all the things that he said about himself are now transferred to Titus. This is my son. He has come in my name to do my work. And what is it? God. That's the work. That's the message. That's the means. That's the purpose. That's the telos. What has been written so far is for Titus's benefit and refreshment as he begins his work on Crete, and it is for the benefit of the Cretans to establish Titus's authority within the framework of the larger apostolic mission. The Cretan Christians lived and moved in a swirl of overlapping narratives, and Paul undercuts wherever he can to reveal the truth of the gospel, and that is why Titus is there. He will continue to exploit these stories, these flawed stories, and the flawed character of the renegade Christian teachers, and he's elevating Titus to do the good work of the go- preaching the gospel, and he's going to trash these other guys at every turn. And, and what this shows us is what, right, what ought we to be about? We ought to be about proclaiming the truth. And we are supposed to be a people who not care about whatever the culture says are the blasphemy laws. Right? A, a trans whatever is, is what? I'm not going to say what they want me to say. A marriage is a marriage, a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and I can't even believe it, but it's true. That is what we're fighting over. And so that's what we're fighting over. What does the word marriage mean? What does the word man mean? Right? Because they will go in to their dictionary online and they'll start jacking around with the definitions of words that have always meant what they have always meant in every language. We live on a little island of blue, And we are surrounded by lies. But we serve the one who cannot lie, who does not lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And what he has sent us with is a message of truth, empowered by truth, to build on what is true, and, and, and to build up everyone in the truth, and to call the lies what they are called. He could just, in this letter, talk about what's true and not talk about what's false. I think a lot of Christians would be like, okay, that's good. Right? We live in this culture now, we have these comfortable churches, and some young guy comes in there, he's new, because he's like, you know what, this last couple of years have been crazy. And I've been listening to some Jordan Peterson, and I remember some catechism questions from when I'm a kid, and I, but I want to return to something that's true, something that's stable, something that's real. And so he goes to, into a church, and he says to the people there, hey, what are you guys doing about abortion? You know, that's murdering babies, right? <laughs> okay, what are, you, what are you guys doing about the education system, which is disgusting? And some churches will be like, where did this, why, why do you want all this, look at all this conflict, you rabble-rousal, right? You troubler of Israel. <laughs> right? what, there are people out there looking for someone who's going to stand up and say what's true, and they'll take Jordan Peterson. Now, I love Jordan Peterson, don't get me wrong. I think he's in the kingdom. I'm pretty sure I don't have evidence. And, but uh, what about all of those people who, who uh, he's too much for them? Right? And so they're now on these podcasts and these trad this and trad that, and everybody is looking for someone to tell them what the truth is. And you've got Jordan Peterson again. He made a video to the churches, and everyone who is a Christian should watch it. Because one of the things he says in there is, listen, say the truth. Say what's true, no matter what it costs you. And he's got more backbone than a majority of the ministers in this country. He's got more backbone than a majority of the ministers in the Western Hemisphere. And we could all learn a little something from him. The problem is lies, and they're going to trash the lies, and they're going to elevate the truth. They're going to proclaim it. They're going to teach it. They're going to live it. And that's how they're going to change Crete. That's the only way to change any place. And so we have got to be a place that proclaims the truth, that lives the truth, that is not afraid of of the lies of the culture, and we will call them what they are. Now, at the heart of this, and this is very important, there's something here in the letter of Titus that's very different for Paul. He, he has deviated from his usual practice of referring to G, uh, Jesus as Christ our Lord. Okay, he did that earlier on, but what did he say? He said Christ our Savior. 
Now here at the end of, of this, he says, God, our Savior. So what, what is he doing there? Why, why is he deviated from his normal? Because you remember, first century, the, the big argument of the day was who is Lord? Now what you see is that on the island of Crete, it's a little different. The problem isn't who is Lord, but who is saving you? Is Zeus going to save you? Is lying going to save you? Is the false gospel of the circumcision party going to save you? The, 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 the heart of the issue is salvation. Now, we still have all those other works about Jesus is Lord, but here he wants everyone to understand that Jesus is the Savior and God is the Savior. Salvation is why they were sent to Crete. Now, you live in an age where we could talk about Jesus being the Lord. I don't even think people are ready for that. They need a savior. We live in an age, right? And I think ages are different. People deal with different things at different times. We are not dealing with a time where people are confused about who the Lord is. We're de dealing with a time where people are looking to food and drugs and, and pharmaceuticals and pornography and, and the lies of the culture to save themselves, to soothe themselves, to comfort themselves because they are lost in a dark world full of lies. And, and I will explain to anyone that Jesus Christ is Lord. But first, what we need to do is explain to them that he is salvation. He is what will save them, not the pills, right? The food isn't going to save you. The, the nice car isn't going to save you. More money is not going to save you. The government's not going to save you. The only thing that can save you is Jesus. Now, it's a lot for one long Greek sentence. <laughs> but it just highlights what I said last week. He is cramming a great deal into a few words. And I, I, and I don't know about you, I, I, I imagine what, how Titus felt when he first received this letter. He's ready to rock and roll. Let's do this thing. Right? I, I, I have a creed, and, and, I, and I know what deeds are to, to follow. And, and let's go out and let's proclaim this. Let's get excited about this. Let's be zealous for this. That's why... Paul will several times let it get zealous about this. You, you are here, all of you, because God chose you, and, and you are in a dark world full of lies, and you know the truth. You know the truth. Now, imagine wandering around a maze. You've already made yourself, right? If you, if you made it through a maze, you're the person who goes back now through the maze and tells everybody how to get out of the maze. That's what you're here to do. That's how you're, that you're here to live that way and speak that way. And act, right? Here's the creed. Believe it and act like it's true. And by doing this, what we do is we cast light in dark places. We cast the truth into a, an atmosphere of lies. And what we are doing is building a household. We're building our household, yes, but also through those households, God's household. That's the only way we're going to win this place. That's the only way we're going to help these people around us is, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation that came down from heaven and that dwells in our hearts and minds. That is our message. That is our purpose. And, and that is what we should all be about as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Titus. We thank you for Paul. Lord, I pray that as we consider these things, that we would be reinforced in the truth of the gospel, that we would be strengthened by it, Lord, that we would give our assent, Lord, and that we would live as people of truth and people of light, people of eternal life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and amen.